0: If you have a Bible, you can start. We're going to start in Genesis 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can always grab one on your way in. If you can't afford a Bible, take a Bible. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure you have one. So we're in a series entitled Satan H. Genesis 1. And in this series, what we've been doing is just walking through uh, Genesis 1 and laying out the foundational truths that are in this series so that we might best understand how it is that God designed the world, how he created it. It says right at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we just believe that what God wrote in his book is true. And so we started in the very first verse. In week one, we laid out a few truths that God is the creator that God's plan is good, and uh, that we are created in His image. Humanity now created in the image of God has an inherent value. We don't have to go earn our value. We obtain a value, and then that value drives a God-given purpose. This is true both uh, in the original creation creation in Genesis 1 and in the, the recreation uh, where Christ uh, has risen from the grave, and then we are not only now made in the image of God, but we are raised in Christ when we when we step into faith, and uh, we are then given good works, like it says in Ephesians 2.10, but we receive something first. We don't earn our value in Christianity. We receive a value, and then we operate out of a purpose from that value. This morning, uh, I guess the last two weeks, you could say we answered the questions uh, first, like, what what gives me worth as a human? Uh, The second week, then, we answered the question Uh, What do I do with my life? Uh, This week, we're we're answering the question, what's my identity? Who am I? Now, this is a very popular question right now. In fact, I would say that this is kind of the, the question of our day, the question of identity. Where does my identity come from? Who will define who I am? I probably did more reading in anticipation of this uh, particular sermon than I have in any sermon in my life, and I'm not going to bore you with all of the reading that I did, but I will try to summarize some of it uh, just to kind of give a context for our discussion uh, this morning, but our sermon this morning, and give you some context for that, but then I want to get to what my job is. Uh, my job, I'm not a social scientist, I'm, I'm a preacher, and so my job is to, to, point out the scriptures. But I do think there's a little bit that we can understand that'll help set us up. One author that I read said that we live in a day that he defines as the height of expressive individualism. The height of expressive individualism. And uh, he goes on to write this in his book. It's a great quote. I want to read it to you uh, this morning. The intuitive, there's a lot of words in this quote, the intuitive moral structure of our modern social imaginary prioritizes victimhood, sees selfhood in psychological terms, regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, and places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her existence. About right? Yeah. Yeah. It is right. And this particular author actually goes back and he kind of traces the intellectual, um, I guess, progress of this type of thought that, that allowed us to get to the place that we're in right now. And it's easy for us to look in at culture and say, oh my goodness, what happened? What is, what is going on right now? But as Christians, our job is not to whine about culture. Our job is to proclaim the gospel in the midst of it. And so this morning, we're not going to whine. And we're not going to um, repeat previous mistakes of the church. What we are going to do is we're going to talk about how the gospel is true in every era, in every culture. And that the gospel brings great hope and good news. And so in the midst of a culture that regards traditional sexual codes as oppressive and life-denying, that places a premium on the individual's right to define his or her existence, what does the gospel say? What does scripture say? Well, we go back to the beginning always. Genesis 1.27, for God created, so God created them male and female. I'm butchering this verse. Let me just read it. That's why I have a Bible. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then you go over to uh, Genesis chapter 2, and God—it's uh, Genesis 2 is just the more artistic form uh, of Genesis chapter 1 and, and includes a little bit more details. And so, when we say Satan hates Genesis 1, we mean Satan hates Genesis 1 and he hates Genesis 2. He hates the whole book. But these two in particular. And in Genesis 2, we see how God forms uh, man, and then we see how God forms woman. And then we see how God brings man and woman together in marriage. And then we see how uh, in marriage, God instructs them to be fruitful and multiply. So much is happening here in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In fact, if I was going to summarize them in two statements, I would say truth number one that we're seeing here is this, that God created man and woman to complement each other. God created man and woman to complement each other. Truth number two is this, that biblical sexuality in the scriptures is always and has always been properly understood by the church for 2,000 years, man and woman in marriage, That this is God's sexual standard. That anything outside of that then is a violation of God's way. And culture, for all of time, but more particularly in ours, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, has been attacking each of these three truths. There's been a progress of it. This is how we arrived in this series. A few weeks ago or a few months ago, I was talking about how if I were Satan, which I'm not, if I were Satan, then maybe the place to start if you wanted to disrupt and destroy Christianity, to destroy God's movement, is to begin to attack the very basic nature of what it means to be human, male and female, That maybe it is a sign that Satan is winning when we're actually having cultural debates where intelligent people are having debates on uh, on what gender is. That this, though, uh, is not something that we just magically arrived at to have these conversations. There has been a chipping away over the years uh, just even about these things I talked about, the way that God designed man and woman the way that he designed them to operate within marriage, uh, the way that marriage was set up, sexuality as a whole then, uh, and now we've arrived at this uh, current transgender moment. And the author uh, of, of one particular book lays out some of these thoughts, but let me give you a verse of context here so you don't think I'm just giving you uh, my own commentary. Let me give you some biblical evidence for why it is important that I'm going to say uh, what I'm about to say. Colossians 2 which is a passage that we've looked at already in this series, says this, See to it, see to it that no one takes you captive. The idea of captivity is that you're enslaved, that you're enslaved. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is writing, and he's saying, there, are going to be, there is going to be a day when philosophers... When intellectual minds posit theories and ideas of how humanity is operating or is supposed to operate and in those days, don't get caught up in them because they're empty deceits. They are human thinking. They are according to the elemental spirits of the world. That is Satan and his working. It is not according to Christ, these philosophies. If you want to look at the progression of western thought you probably start with rousseau rousseau who uh posited the theory that humanity is best when they find themselves in nature separated from everyone else and their eventual good will come out (laughs) what's the problem with this humanity is not born good humanity is born in sin no one does good no not one so we reject that but culture as a whole didn't reject that. Instead, philosophers began to build on that. At some point, you arrive at Nietzsche, dark man. Talked about how the, uh, the, the inner evil impulses begin to define humanity. Darwin latched onto this when and the idea then uh, of of identity as this like transitional evolving shifting thing all of these theories by the way based in a rejection of the existence of god freud then uh, sexualizes the uh, everything and so we have then the, the psychological self began to discover that kind of look inside, figure out who you are. Then uh, we separated from God, right? Uh, and then we over everything. And then Marxism comes along, ties itself to that, and politicizes everything, which is why we live in a culture where the psychological, sexual, political environment that, that we do. And this is just built up over years, it's why we now live in an environment and in a culture uh, where we say, where, where we or people will say things like, I am defined by my my uh, my sexual identity defines me, or I am uh, defined by what I choose or what I pick. I will find my identity as I go. Let me make it uh, kind of simple. On one hand, God says, I want you to build your identity on this, that I created the world that I have a really good plan for how you should operate, that I made you in my image, I made you in my image, male and female, I created you then to exist in this thing that I have formed and created and that no one else should define, including the Supreme Court, called marriage, and that you will then thrive as you exist in that and your identity can be built on all of that foundation. And then the world says, no, 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 no. Just go ahead and define your Base identity by what you're feeling in the current moment. Rock solid. As weak as the next Instagram post. And Satan's plan is what? To take captive to take captive. I love the language because I think Paul was trying to communicate something. He's saying this isn't a joke. He's saying it is the hearts and souls of God's people, of humanity. And Satan wants to take them captive. He wants to destroy them. And so let's revisit God's original plan first. I want to do that. I want to, I want to revisit a little bit God's plan and how he laid it out so that we might be, uh, might be able to understand it a little bit better. And for some of us, this just might be recap or review. And that's okay because that's good. And, uh, and then what I want to do is I want to talk about what we do then uh, with Satan's distortions. Uh, and then I want to end with what I think the call of the church is in our current moment. The sermon that I was going to preach today, I was practicing it all week, but it kept going about an hour and 10 minutes. I know some of you have your Scrambler Marie's reservations. So I actually broke it up into two sermons, so we'll hit the point two next week, because it's just as important. So let's look at God's original design and plan, what he had in mind, will first operate under the, this truth right here, that God created man and woman to complement each other. I want to start with the, the second half of that, to complement each other. Uh, and, and this is a doctrinal term known as complementarianism. And uh, this, and I want to talk about a little bit what complementarianism does mean and what it doesn't mean. Uh, but it is what we see here uh, existing in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And just in case we think, well, that's the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. Well, oftentimes, Paul refers back to the created order in the Old Testament uh, as reason for things in the New Testament. In other words, he's affirming the created order as God laid out. In this created order, then, God created men and women to complement each other. Now, let's talk about what this means. The word complement is e- C-O, compliment, it's with an E, not an I, okay? An E, not an I, compliment, uh, to compliment each other. Now, it is good to compliment each other. Okay, we can compliment each other, nice shirt, you know, your hair looks good, all that kind of stuff. That's not what this verse means. It doesn't mean that men and women were, you know, created to give each other encouragement. It means men and women were created to complete, to quote a famous movie, I can't even remember what movie it is now, you complete me, right? Right? Men and women were complete, created to, to complement or to complete each other. The definition, something that completes or makes perfect, either of two parts or things needed to complete the whole, counterparts. Now this is supposed to remind us of the Trinity, the Trinity that exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who mutually serve one another. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have different roles, but in uh, conjunction, the three of them complete the Godhood. We then see uh, that complementarianism, or the way that God has created us in this way, is to give a picture of the Trinity. It means that both male and female are made in the image of God. That having both male and female helps us better understand God. That marriage then is a beautiful reflection of male and female coming together in a great picture of who God is and who his church is. And God created male and female, men and women to be this picture. Now believing this does not and is not supposed to create some weird hierarchy between men and women. What is at stakes here is not, um, titles or power but roles. Being a complementarian does not give men a right to rule women and where it has been used that way that is abusive and not scriptural. Complementarianism does not mean a return to 1950s America. What complementarianism means by one female theologian that I agree with is this. Essentially, a complementarian is a person who believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. Complementarians believe that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church, so as Christ is to the church, so the man is to the woman, in a way that females cannot, and that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ in a way that males cannot. She goes on to say this, who we are as male and female is ultimately not about us. There's the rub, isn't it? In a, in a time that can be rightly described as the height of self-expressive individualism, where I get to define my own identity based upon whatever I feel in the current moment, it is not kosher to say, You don't get to define your identity. God did for you. And you are best when you operate within his design. She goes on to say, we do not get to dictate we do, not get, we do not get to dictate what manhood and womanhood are all about. God did in the beginning. Now in that, she's opening up a can more than just uh, male and female roles. She's opening up our entire perspective on identity. And does he get to define it or do I? God already did as Christ served the church so the husband is supposed to serve the wife Satan distorts this through both abuse and passivity we'll talk about this more in two weeks as the church submits to Christ right the woman submits to the husband this is how God has designed us Now of course we can't talk about all the nuances of this, of horrible husbands or horrible wives and how sin influences it and all of that. And I don't want people to arrive at conclusions that have been based on distortions of truth. This doesn't mean that women don't have spiritual gifts to use in the church. Doesn't mean that men get to dominate women. But we are to understand how God has initially wired us what his plan was. Because under the gospel, we are to want to operate as close to the original plan as God had in mind. For that is when, as we have said from the beginning, humanity most thrives. Now, this idea then of God being the one who defines our identity He he originally did it in this way of creating male and female to complement each other, then opens us up to the next two conversations. And I am aware that I'm going to handle two different things kind of um, uh, in tandem. And so as we talk about both homosexuality and transgenderism, I am fully aware that there are differences, that there are different reasons why people would arrive at uh, either conclusion Right, Uh, or or, um, adhere to either one, but I want to deal with them in part in tandem this morning. In short, I want to say that both are subverting the identity that God has laid out. That for all of time, from the Christian and the church perspective, The idea of male and female as a um, biblical construct, as an irrefutable fact of science has been present. That the idea of biblical or godly marriage being man, woman, in the context of marriage, which, by the way, would also mean that pornography, that extramarital affairs, that premarital sex, that cohabitation, that all of these things also are deviations from God's plan. And so this morning, my aim and intent is not to pick on two groups, but to remind us all that the call to come to Christ is a call to die to self. That in our current cultural environment, I explained a little bit of how we got here, that it seems like the last place that people want to die to self is sexuality, sexuality, And we want to be able to define for ourselves what we get to do with the bodies that Christ died for. See, in his appeal to sexual purity in 1 Corinthians, Paul does so under this guise. You were paid for. Your body is not your own. Jesus died for it. now take on the Christ identity take on the Christ identity now if we believe the standard as laid out in the scriptures then any deviation of that standard like colossians 2:8 says is slavery to believe anything outside of the biblical standard then is to be enslaved to the cultural mindset instead of God's mindset So then what is the Christian message? What is the Christian message to the homosexual? What is the Christian message to the person struggling with their gender identity? How ought the church to respond? Let me take you first to Romans 1 16. Well, I'll just say it for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is just seven verses later where Paul then talks about how uh, humanity has exchanged a truth about God for a lie where humanity has uh, basically just shipped in the truth and, uh, and and said, we'll just take on the lie. We'll build our own identities. We'll do this on our own. We'll decide what is right and wrong. I think Paul, prompted by the Holy Spirit, knew where he was going with that text. It's why he preceded that text with the reminder in Romans one sixteen that Christians believe that the gospel can transform any sinful identity and allow it to pursue righteousness instead of sin. But we live in, and Satan has tried to drive our culture to a point where we say, ah, but there are certain things that uh, that now all of a sudden are questions. There were never questions early on. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is an important text, says this, or do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I would add to that First John text that says that when we are in Christ, we do not keep on sinning. To use some, uh, um, some verbiage for, from this sermon, where it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, the kingdom of God? Do you not know that, the, uh, that those who build their identity on anything other than Christ will not inherit the kingdom of God? That those who refuse to repent and to exchange their own, I get to create my own identity for the new identity of Christ. If you don't do that, then you're not in Christ. You do not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul gives a list of some things that people, that he knew. And so if we think, well, it was easier for Paul to say what he said. No, 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 no. Culture was the same back then in many different ways. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is not picking on the homosexuals. Paul is not picking on people who are struggling even with sexual sin. Paul is looking at everybody and he's saying, don't you remember that at one time you picked your own identity? Don't you remember that there was a moment and then he lists out all of these possible options of how people begin to define their own identity instead of letting their identity rest with Christ. Now in our current culture, yeah, we live, and the word, of course, the term gender dysphoria, in a time when more alarming than ever There are even many um, secular writers looking in at the gender gender dysphoria movement, I'll call it that, uh, and just seeing how unhealthy, how did we end up here? And I've explained a little bit of how we did. We live in a culture where the church, over the last 20, 30 years, has embraced or acquiesced on the biblical standard. And if we believe the scriptures in Colossians 2.8, when we say that the church has embraced or acquiesced on the biblical standard, then what we are saying is the church has made it possible where it has not stood for truth to allow people to enslave others. So what is the call? Paul continues. He says, and such were some of you, but Then he says this in verse 11, but you were washed. You were washed. The gospel changed you. And so as Christians, we must first start remembering how the gospel changed us. Remembering how many of those on that short little list you could have checked off. And this ought to humble us. And this ought to make us gracious and kind to all of those who are in sin. Our vitriol, our judgment, our anger should not be pointed at those who are struggling in sin, but pointed at the Satan, at Satan, who has wreaked such havoc, wrought such havoc on the world. Our job is to graciously, lovingly, but truthfully pointing out God's plan. Reminding the world that I once, that you were once building your identity on something else, but that you crucified that identity and God gave you a new one. And who you are before God, who you were before him, is one thing. Oh, but when we, when we are changed by him, we get a completely new identity. It's why we don't hyphenate. I'm not a greedy Christian. I'm not a whatever Christian. No, no, no. You're just now in Christ. You're just now in Christ. See, so we can't mix the old identity and the new identity. We can't try to bring the old identity with us into Christ. We abandon the old identity, the old sin pattern. We crucify it, we put it away, and we take on Christ. He says, you were washed. You were changed by the blood of Christ. He says, and then you were sanctified. The way sanctified means then uh, that you were washed, you were brought into Christ, but then you were sanctified. The Holy Spirit worked sin out, right? And there was repentance and there was um, uh, running from old patterns and running from old ways of thinking uh, and allowing the sinful, the flesh inside of us to be fully and completely crucified because you had determined that you were gonna let God be the one who built your identity. You weren't going to build it on your own. You weren't going to try to hold the world's identity or your own identity and God at this. No, you were sanctified. And so what Paul's saying is you stepped into Christ. You were washed by Christ. And when you walked into, when you stepped into Christ, you might have been sexually immoral or an idolater or homosexual or an uh, adulterer or a thief or greedy or drunkard or revilers or whatever, but you were those things. You don't have to be that anymore. You don't have to be that anymore. You can be set free from that. And the church does a great disservice to the world and a great disservice to anyone When it says come to Christ, but don't come to Christ to change. Just come to Christ and he just, uh, when we say that Christ embraces you as you are, what we're saying is that his love meets you exactly where you are. But if you really experience his love, you will never stay as you are. He says, in this thing, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were made righteous before God. (laughs) You were made righteous before him. (sighs) And see, you can tell, Paul doesn't care here what sin it was. He didn't care here which one of these. He was just saying, y'all were so screwed up. All of you were. Don't point your fingers at one or two. Don't elevate them all. They're all messed up. Oh, but you step into Christ. You take on Christ. You let the Holy Spirit work and crucify the sinful nature inside of you. And you become something different. This has got to be the message that the church has to those who have chosen homosexuality to the Christian who is struggling and trying to decide. That's you. Don't believe the lie. Don't allow yourself to fall into captivity. Let Jesus change your identity. Let him bring you to a place of brokenness. And then let the spirit of God build you back up. I'm not doing my job if I don't tell you to run from slavery. What then else also does the church or must the church do? Secondly, we must walk with those who either personally or from a family perspective, are being hit by this. We must walk with grace. We must walk with understanding. We must walk with prayer. And we must walk in community together as the church, embracing, loving each other, loving those who are struggling but want to be renewed by Christ, giving them an outlet, giving them a place to grow up in Christ and to be changed by Christ, walking with those who have family members that they're praying for that, 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 that cause them to lose sleep at night and never not believing in the power of the gospel to redeem anything. Also then, what is the church's job? What is the church's job in the midst of what we live in right now? Bring us to Ephesians chapter six, verse 10. Before I do that, let me tell you a little Just a quick story. Uh, Marx wanted to break in to England with his ideology, godless ideology. And he later retorted that the thing that stopped his ideology from spreading was the gospel preaching of Charles Spurgeon. See, the gospel and the church has always been always been the wall that was supposed to stand between Satan and his tactics and the world. But when the church gives up its responsibility and allows untruth to break in through the walls, then humanity is prey to Satan's lies. And one of Satan's tactic tactics lately has been to try and get the church to believe in the lie, to silence itself, or to um, believe the idea that Christians aren't allowed to fight, that Christians aren't allowed to be stern. Lindsay and I talk about this frequently on those Friday morning walks that I referenced. I am sick and tired of Christians making excuse for the Bible. It is God's plan. Stop it. Every time you make an excuse for it, you poke a hole in the wall. It's God's perfect plan. Don't make excuses. He's God. You're not. The reason... One of the reasons we're where we're at right now is because years ago, decades ago, the church stopped, stopped saying, no, this is right, this is true, we believe this. Listen, I've said it before. Christians believe the Bible. There's a whole group of people that don't believe the Bible. They're called non-Christians. Christians believe the Bible. Why? Because it's God's perfect plan. Because it's been his perfect plan for 2,000 years. We make no excuse. I don't have to make an unbeliever get comfortable with things in the Bible. I just have to point them to Jesus. He'll take care of that. Right. Spurgeon tells the story He says, Imagine a group of men captured a lion and they wanted to protect the lion from a group of people with some sticks. And so they put him in a cage and guarded the cage. And Spurgeon goes on to say, I would think the best way to protect the lion is to let him out of the cage, he can handle himself. I would think the best way for us to protect the truth of scripture is not to think that we have to guard it and make excuses for it, but just let it out. If you're wondering why people don't like what's in the Bible that you talk to, Scripture tells us why. It's because they don't love God. Once they start to love God, they'll love His perfect plan because they'll see it is best. It is best. So, what do we do, church? Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. God would not have told us to be strong if he didn't think that there was a battle ahead. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Yes, he's scheming. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What do we do? We stand firm. We stand firm. We stand strong. We proclaim the truth of the gospel. We allow ourselves to be humbled by the fact that God would save me and that God would save you. And through that, then the humility of what the cross produces when we just stand firm and we say, I know it might not make sense to you. It didn't make sense to me at one point, but then God changed me and now it makes perfect sense because he's the creator. His plan is good and he made me in his image. And so we stand firm proclaiming the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. And let me just remind you of what that truth is for anyone who is wondering. In Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. No matter what you have struggled with in the past, no matter what sin you have fallen prey to, you are now forgiven by the blood of Christ. Romans 6, 6, to those who are struggling currently, they don't think they have the power to do the right thing thing. You are now controlled and compelled by the power of a risen Christ. The sinful nature has died. You can say yes to the spirit living inside of you. To those who think that God has stopped loving them, Galatians 2.20, he loved you so much that he gave himself for you. He lost his identity on the cry, on the cross so that you could take on your brand new identity. To those who think that God messed up when he made you and you believe the lies of the enemy on how you were designed, Psalm 139, 14. He designed you intricately and fearfully and beautifully and wonderfully and he made you who he wanted you to be in your God-given identity and now he redeems it and restores it when sin breaks in through Christ. And to those who think that they cannot change and they will always be prey to the enemy, Colossians 3, you have been made new. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let all of the other stuff strip away and as you do you will walk in the fullness of the Redeemed life. As Christ's blood flowed out of him violently, the Spirit now will flow in you triumphantly. As Christ forsaken cost him his perfect identity, Christ risen grants you your new identity. As Christ is not defined by the sin he bore on the cross, you are not defined by the sin that you have committed in your past. As Christ is identified by his risen self, so you are now identified by the risen Jesus. As Christ did not remain in the grave, you do not have to remain in your sin. And as Christ is not lesser since he died, you do not have to accept any lesser identity than redeemed son and daughter of the king. You are not defined by some hyphenated thing that you think has power over you. You are a new creation. You are something brand new. You are forgiven, controlled by Christ, bought and paid for on the cross, risen, empowered by the spirit, able to walk in freedom. That's the gospel, and that's our job. I don't have anything else to say. Let's pray. Let's Let's take a moment and pray. Um, I don't do that. I'm going to get on my knees. Father, I pray that there is nothing in what I have said that could lead us to self-righteousness. Our sincere desire is to believe in the word of God and to walk in what it says, believing that it is best for people. You are a great liberator, Christ. And part of your liberation is freeing us from the philosophies and empty deceit of this world. Use us and use your church to set people free. May we walk in grace and truth, but with a firmness that what you say is best. Father, we pray for those in our lives who are struggling. We pray for our Christian brothers and sisters, struggling with their gender identity, struggling with homosexuality. By the power of the gospel, set them free. Father, we pray for those in our life who don't know Christ Oh, may the gospel compel them so deeply. And Father, help us to be good to each other as a church family. Understanding the very personal nature that this hits many, that we would walk with each other in love and grace and community. Strip us of any pride or arrogance. Help us to be the church that you came to plant And Lord, send revival. Break the chain of the enemy. Use your church to stand firm and fight back. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.